Welcome to the first episode in our inclusive food systems podcast series. Our guest today is Dr. Shreya Sinha and in this episode we will explore the role of women in agriculture and agrarian economy. Shreya is a lecturer at the University of Reading's School of Agriculture Policy and Development. She is an interdisciplinary researcher drawing on debates across development studies and human geography. to study the political economy and political ecology of agrarian change previously shreya was involved with the tigress project at the university of cambridge which is there transforming india's green revolution by research and empowerment for sustainable food supplies project in today's episode shreya offers key insights into the feminization of agriculture as well as the many vulnerabilities of female farmers and farm workers we discuss the difficulties that these women face in accessing male dominated markets the undermining of their labor as soft labor and the caste gender nexus that further oppresses female farm workers we end by listening to shreya's vision for the future of women in agriculture which is hopeful but also reminds us of the urgent changes required in our agrarian systems and the long journey ahead. Shreya, thank you for joining us today to talk about the intersection of gender and agrarian economy and the role of women in agriculture. To start off, can you tell us about your work on agrarian economy given that you have been involved with the tigress project which is transforming india's green revolution by research and empowerment for sustainable food supplies can you briefly talk about the research undertaken at tigress on the role of women in agriculture so my own work on agrarian economy has basically focused on a number of different things i've worked on processes of capital accumulation and commodity markets as well as labor relations and agriculture i've done a lot of this work in punjab but also through the tigress project which is based at the university of cambridge i've done some of this work collaboratively in other parts of the country as well in the tigress program the work that we undertook was basically collaborative with organizations in different parts of the country and the ms swaminathan research foundation in tamil nadu and the pradhan in bihar and the part of the program that we were involved in was focused on understanding the kind of policy and political economy implications of trying to develop a sustainable agricultural and food systems agenda so in this i think of course a lot of us collectively felt that there needs to be a focus on women and you know what women do particularly because of the kind of entire discussion around feminization of agriculture we worked a lot on what women were doing productively so in terms of their engagement in agriculture but also with a focus on what were the kind of social reproductive roles of women and with a particular emphasis on food and nutrition Shreya in your opinion have conversations on the intersection of gender and agriculture gained more relevance and nuance in recent years and is this conversation restricted to academic research organizations or is it also being reflected in changes in government policy and movements on the ground 
That's a great question, actually. Now, I definitely think that there is a lot more conversation on the question of gender and agriculture. I think it partly just reflects the ground reality of just the sheer amount of work that women do, the kind of burden of work that rural women have to shoulder. I think so there is an appreciation of this kind of double burden of work, definitely in academic research. I think there is also, of course, a great emphasis on intersectionality, on the fact that different castes and different Adivasi women or different class categories would have implications for, for how gender and agriculture intersect in any given context. And I think that is, again, a very, it's it's a field that continues to grow. I Apart from academic research, there is also a lot of movement, a lot of activity around this in terms of movements. And here, I think what I want to mention is, of course, there are civil society organizations. Pradhan, for example, we work with them on the Tigris project, but there are, there are n number of such civil society organizations which are working on these issues. And there is some kind of feedback between academic research on some of these issues and the kind of work that civil society organizations do it. And particularly because NGOs sort of work on the ground, they're able to capture the reality of the fact that women are doing a lot of the agricultural work. And so you'll see a lot of developmental programs and even funding from donors, etc., which has a kind of gender emphasis by which, of course, they mean an emphasis on empowering women and so on. I think what is less heartening, it, it's in the sphere of government policy that I think we are really lagging behind. I honestly can't think of anything really concrete that the government has done in the Indian context, which is for women farmers. Of course, in 2017, they declared the Rashtriya Mahila Kisan Divas, I think, which is celebrated. And so, of course, there is this acknowledgement that women are an important part of agriculture. But I think there is nothing really concrete from the government side. And it honestly just amounts to lip service at this point. I actually want to take a step back now to establish for our listeners why it's even necessary to be applying a gender lens when we're looking at agriculture and agrarian economy. In India and most other developing countries, women make up a large part of the agricultural labor force. So I want to ask you, what really is the role of women in agriculture? Can you also maybe elaborate on the gender division of agricultural labor? I think a gender lens to the agrarian economy can be really productive. Of course, our ideal image of a farmer, when one normally thinks of a farmer, one is thinking of a of a man either with a hoe or on a tractor. But of course, that is a kind of an image that hides more than it reveals. And just aside, when these current farmer protests were going on, there were these kind of images of women, of course, in protest, but also on the tractor. And that led to a lot of conversation. And that just tells you how little in mainstream discourse one like people understand the kind of role that women play. So the role that women play can often really vary in different parts of the country, but it I think women do a lot of the, in terms of actual farm work, women can often be involved in sowing of the crop, in harvesting, in weeding. So all the major activities in different parts of the country, in some permutation or combination, they'll actually be doing this work. And of course, in addition to this, they if, if there are allied activities, so in terms of livestock or having some a poultry in, in forested areas, it could be collection of non-timber forest produce and selling some of that 
up in coastal areas it could also mean fishing and all of this often also tends to be the responsibility of the women if not exclusively then at least partly and then of course on top of that there is the question of there's all the social reproductive role of collecting fuel collecting fodder collecting water and i think it's important to have this entire spectrum of activities that women do in our analysis i think it's important to actually think of all these activities because ultimately and one thing a rural household normally is doing many different things to reproduce itself and so it's not enough to just look at it in terms of they're producing wheat or they're producing soybean or so on and so forth i think taking a gender lens to agrarian economy actually allows you to see this actually very very complex way in which rural households and rural communities are constituted and the many different things that contribute to its sustenance so the flip side of this gender lens would then be about what are some of the vulnerabilities that these women farmers and farm laborers actually face and vulnerabilities here in terms of their malnutrition threats to their safety while they're working on farms vulnerability to extreme poverty and even lack of access to resources so can you elaborate on some of these particular vulnerabilities I think the one thing I want to start by saying on this is that there is this intersectional issue that comes up here. So female farm workers in India are predominantly of the lower caste and not always but to a great extent they are and of course that plays a huge role in the vulnerability of the farm workers. So one of the things you mentioned for example the threat to their safety while working in farms. I think my own work in Punjab and work of other scholars in uh, other parts of the country have indicated how say dalit farm workers who are women are at, often are at the receiving end of predatory sexual behavior by upper caste men for example or landowners on the other hand of course they are the female work farm workers are actually paid less than others they are, in fact the reason why some scholars argue that the reason why so much of farm work has been feminized is because women can be paid uh, less than the average less than what a man would be paid so of course that means that they don't have that much income they are, there are very hard choices that they have to make in terms of food and in terms of what what they provide to their children and again this is also documented that women often they will feed their children but they won't eat themselves very well or they'll feed the man in the house and of course then the access to resources i think is is again it's just completely dismal female farmers as well as female farm workers of course they don't have access to land we have very few a very small percentage of land is actually owned agricultural land is actually owned by women and then that has other kinds of implications sometimes that means that you are not recognized as a farmer that means that you can't access credit it means that you probably aren't recognized as the head of household so perhaps you you don't get the benefits someone else in the household gets benefits there is like a whole you know gamut of ways in which their their lives and their livelihoods are quite circumscribed and vulnerable Now I'm wondering and it's something you've briefly mentioned before as well can you explain the phenomenon of feminization of agriculture and has this allowed for actually increased financial independence food security and autonomy for women 
And the second part of my question is, has this feminization of agriculture been impacted by the various pandemic-induced lockdowns? So feminization of agriculture, of course, has been a very important uh, way in which gender and agriculture has been studied in India, but also in other parts of the world. The idea of feminization of agriculture is that, basic idea is that as Men are leaving agriculture and that is happening over the past few decades for various different reasons. So it is happening because it's distress driven. So agriculture is simply not yielding enough income for that for it to be sustainable. So they look for non-farm employment, they migrate either daily or for you know for on seasonal and circular basis to other parts of the country. Alternatively, sometimes men also leave because it's considered very degrading to continue to work in agriculture. But particularly if you're from uh, the lower caste and lower classes, if, if this is a household which is it's a community which has worked as attached labor for the upper caste or the more dominant community in the village over a period of time men have also left agriculture because it's considered undignified and therefore they kind of migrate so in any case once that happens and there has been a huge trend towards that the burden of managing the agricultural land falls on the woman of the household if this is a landless household and the man has migrated then of course there is still a there's still a household to be maintained and so then the women still need to do some agricultural wage work to sustain themselves so so there has been this entire process of feminization of agriculture as a result of that. At the same time, I think so much of this has manifested in the form of women actually doing agricultural work that some scholars would say that this is actually feminization of agricultural work rather than feminization of agriculture as a whole. It's really the work that women have to uh, do. Its consequences for women have actually been quite varied. The assumption is often that, of course, now that they are the kind of, they are the managers of agriculture or they are the managers of the, their household, this might lead to more autonomy or more financial independence. But actually, the evidence on this is quite different. So f- just as an example, on our on our own on Tigris research, our my collaborators in different parts of the country. So, for example, in, in South Bihar, where Pradhan was working, we found that the migration of men actually didn't mean that the women had complete autonomy on decision making, and they still consulted the men all the time when they were making decisions around agriculture. While on the other hand, in, in Tamil Nadu, the the M S Swaminathan Research Foundation, they found that in fact women had a little bit more autonomy. They were able to engage post harvest terms of trade of the agricultural produce. So I think there is a bit of variation around this. Now, just to come to the uh, point of has this feminization of agriculture been affected by the lockdowns and the pandemic? So I think hugely, I think the pandemic, the evidence that we have at the moment is that the pandemic has had a huge impact on women in many different ways. In fact, one is that the growth of unemployment in the country in general means that even these rural men who were migrating migrating are actually have lost their jobs they're going back and they are actually displacing the work done by women so women's employment like rural women's employment has actually been displaced on the other hand and you see this in some of the surveys that actually rural women appear to be the worst affected in 
the unemployment crisis that India is currently witnessing. The other thing is, of course, that now that when the lockdowns happened and whole families were back in the village, women's burden of care work increased a lot. And there is some evidence that even through the second wave, for example, when a lot of people were ill, women had to put in a lot of kind of care work, which also meant that they couldn't actually, rural women couldn't do income generating employment. So I think the pandemic has had a huge effect on what rural women do, how they engage in agriculture and in some senses we're still in the middle of the pandemic so we have to see how this unfolds really. Thanks for that Shreya and you mentioned that it's the feminization of agricultural work specifically and not agricultural systems as a whole which actually brings me to my next question which is that even though men are like you said leaving agriculture and more and more women are involved in managing land and getting involved in production why is it still so hard for women farmers to access agricultural markets and trade? And what are some methods that have actually been effective in enabling women's participation in agricultural markets? That's a great question. I think in terms of markets and trade, so one thing is that, of course, if you can see that since a lot of the feminization has been around the feminization of agricultural work, and in fact, some people would say it's actually a feminization of agricultural distress. So this means that in any case, women are mostly doing the work and not controlling so much of the produce. So there's a bit of a, the one doesn't necessarily follow from the other. But th- this is a real problem. Like women farmers and their access to markets, it is a genuine problem. I think it's also relatively perhaps under-researched. But I think some things are quite clear. For example, one of the most important things, one of the things to remember is that what you call the wholesale markets are often not located in the village. You have to travel a bit sometimes go to the next town it can be quite a few kilometers away in order to so you need to travel a bit to sell the produce and for women it is quite difficult to do this because not just because they may not have the resources but also because of norms around whether women should be doing this kind of a thing or not the other part of it of course is that market spaces themselves are extremely masculine often as someone who has spent a long time doing primary research in in wholesale markets i can tell you these are extremely masculine spaces and not at all conducive to women being doing any kind of work there to be honest and so I think that's one of the reasons also that women find that hard but then there are some other things like women don't have access to information in the same way a lot of selling in the markets means that you have to liaise you have to talk to a lot of people you have to have a sense of which where what kind of prices is going and I think it's a little bit harder for women to do it and if you look at some of the newer innovations around around agricultural markets in India it's very focused on on the digital space these apps you'll have apps or you'll have messages coming on your phone or of course this electronic national agricultural market the whole ENAM scheme I think one needs to understand that rural women just don't have the same access to digital devices in the same way so even these kinds of innovations they, they, they are not the ones that are helping women access market so I think these are some of the major reasons for women's exclusion from markets and market spaces but of course I think some things that have helped women participate in different contexts I think has been being in a collective I think that's one of the things 
that has helped women so when women are brought about in a collective so for example in cooperatives or for example there's this great example of the deccan development society which which has a lot of these millet farmers women who are who farm millet and they who produce it and who sell it and they won several awards and so on and so i think in different parts of the country if you i think once they're in a collective it becomes easier and then of course they need to have some support from either a civil society organization or from the you know district administration or something like that and i think that can help women to participate in agricultural markets given these measures like you said women's collectives and civil society organizations given these steps have proven to be relatively successful in enabling women's participation what measures and programs has the indian government actually implemented to empower women farmers in the country and to what extent have these measures been successful So in fact I think I'm really struggling with this question because I honestly can't think of anything specific that the central government has done to empower women farmers. I think different state governments have probably thought about this a bit more. That's also partly because state governments in India normally are the ones that are delivering most of the welfare programs. I think one of the examples I can think of is that in Andhra Pradesh they have the zero budget natural farming. There is some debate about how effective or scalable zero budget natural farming could be, but for example that's a program that has absolutely focused on women and what women farmers can do, how can they liaise with each other and build their expertise in this kind of farming increase yields and so on but to be honest apart from some of these schemes like that i don't think the indian government has done anything substantive for this constituency of women farmers and and perhaps actually maybe that's the reason why they haven't because they are not seen as a constituency i want to actually spend some time now discussing the gaps and challenges that stand in the way of women farmers and farm workers Patriarchal social norms in the country ensure that women farm laborers have to juggle their work with reproductive labor which is seen as fundamentally tied to their gender. Simultaneously their labor on the fields is undermined as soft labor and therefore invisibilized. What kind of changes need to take place in agrarian systems to reduce women's work burden and for their work to be valued? the way your question is framed is quite interesting because the question says what are the changes required in agrarian systems and i think that that's an interesting way to frame the question but because it forces you to think about what is an agrarian system is it just is just farming an agrarian system probably not i think an agrarian system and this is something i was trying to say before as well it's composed of many different things it's a whole range of things on the farm off the farm the space of the village the kind of social programs that are existing the nature of the state or the other kind of grassroots mobilizations all of this constitute what an agrarian system looks like in any place or at any given point of time and i think that's perhaps that's important because 
the kind of changes that you do need to reduce women's work burden are actually quite uh, wide ranging you started by talking about patriarchal uh, social norms that's of course absolutely uh, fundamental which is women women's work shouldn't be considered soft labor they should be paid equally as men are paid but that for example is not something that is really limited only to the agrarian system that is there's something you know larger it's much more it's a, a societal issue that is much larger than just agriculture and yet it is again extremely fundamental to how women's work is conceptualized why is why should women always be the one collecting water or why they are the ones of whom they are, they are in charge of tending to the children taking care of them bathing them feeding them and all of these things sound quite mundane but they take up a lot of time and they they constitute work and so i mean challenging some of those notions i think of course is very important in fact there's some very interesting work done by on well-being and women's work burdens by who's at university of east anglia and some of her colleagues and in one of their papers they've actually talked about how in peak harvest seasons women get so tired that sometimes men also contribute to household work and they'll contribute a bit by taking care of the children during that point and so on so it's possible to do so this is possible and therefore challenging them and normalizing this kind of sharing of work i think of course is very important but there are other kinds of dimensions the thing is agricultural work is informal so one could say that legally it should be mandated that men or women are paid the same even in agriculture but it is agricultural work is basically considered as informal work so this is not very easy to to control there are other things that need that agrarian systems need to change think of something like just the environment how much I and mean, i've seen n number of journalistic report and scholarly work that tells you how long it takes women to collect water because there is water scarcity and different parts of the country you will see the same thing they have to take they have to spend such a long time to do these things and and in some senses you also have to think of the fact that an environmental distress is also gendered and addressing that should also be part of looking at women's work burdens and then there is this other part of the thing which is around care work and i think there there should be also programs of supporting women for child care right nurseries or the anganwadis should work better the midday meal school should work better all of those things would also reduce women's work burdens right just so there are a number of different ways which should include patriarchal social norms but also other kinds of things that can go along way in reducing these this kind of double triple burden of work that uh, rural women often have to shoulder the reality is that in india harmful patriarchal norms can't really be challenged unless we also challenge caste and think about the ways in which caste actually intersects with gender to oppress women 85% of women farm workers in india hail from lower castes and i want to ask you and this is something we were discussing earlier as well how do caste and gender actually intersect to further marginalize farm laborers and farmers who might be smallholder farmers or even landless farm laborers and how does caste actually place them at risk of e- extreme poverty caste and gender based violence and also creates barriers to their participation in market and trade 
Yeah, I think this is such an important question. I think you simply can't understand the predicament of most female farm workers if one doesn't think of the question of caste. See, the thing is that in 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 a village where you are clearly the oppressed community, caste community, you're already uh, you, you've already been dehumanized and you've been rendered politically, socioeconomically uh, powerless. In, and then you have on top of that the difference between a man and a woman and and so i think the lower caste women scheduled caste women or whatever is construed as lower in a given uh, context i think they of course face a huge brunt of class and caste oppression and violence even in my own field work for example in punjab there are dalit men would often work in the city so they would do some construction work or just odd jobs in the city or other kinds of non farm work even if it's in the rural areas so of course the women had to then deal with they in some cases say in cotton growing areas they did a lot of the cotton picking work in other areas they might where vegetables are grown they might be doing doing work with vegetables they are the community who are then directly engaging with the dominant caste and that's and that of course creates all all, all sorts of problems they have to work for them but they often also have to go to the same people to ask for some amounts of, of food during food scarce periods of the year they have to go if there's medical emergency in the house they might have to take some loans for some informal loans for that and that is of course that kind of it just builds up into this really oppressive kind of situation in fact i just re- really want to recommend the phd thesis of a friend of mine and also colleague whose name is tanisha moha and she did her phd at lsc she worked on women who were working as attached labor in tamil nadu and in west bengal and it was a comparative study and uh, you know she shows how these also these lower caste women who were landless uh, often they were actually they were dependent on these landowners of both for land and for both to access land so they would take land on a tenancy basis and they often in return then had to do some sundry work for the for the landlord so it was actually a kind of like a payment in some cases it was really not just a payment in cash but also payment in kind and there was this kind of earlier some kind of an attachment or i'm hesitating to say the word bonded but it's it's really a version of that kind of bonded attachment because you are dependent on them for credit and you are dependent on them for land and then in return you have to do things in cash you have to pay them in cash or pay them in kind and you can see these kind of these interlocked relations with within which men within which not men but women are tied into and of course then in some cases it also spills into sexual violence or exploitation of different kinds and in fact there's a there's this whole idea that there is male freedom of men who have migrated outside or have decided to do non farm work and therefore have decided to leave these relations of attachment so there's been this sort of male freedom at the expense of female unfreedom this is just to give you some sense of the ways in which you know caste and class and gender they just come together to create really dependent and oppressive relations within which women have to exist and work and care for their family at the same time as we near the end of today's recording i'd like to spend some time discussing sustainable agriculture women farm laborers are relegated to the most labor and time intensive tasks on the field 
such as weeding, threshing, and paddy transplantation. Given that sustainable agricultural practices are usually more labor-intensive than commercialized agriculture, does the burden of sustainability fall disproportionately on women farm laborers? I think, I think one of the things that I often say is that, and it's probably something that I find, that often conversations on sustainability are really lopsided towards the question of the environment and less towards the question of social justice. Even though if you think about it, the idea of sustainable development, when it first came up, that basic definition includes the idea of intra and intergenerational equality and justice. And so I think think this question is really important. What kind of sustainability are we even thinking about if we are not thinking about questions of power, in this case, gender justice, but it could also be just social justice in other in other senses. So I think this is absolutely true that a lot of these sustainable agricultural practices are relatively more labor intensive. They can, it, I think they can, off, and they, they can, in fact, increase the burden of work on, on women farmers and farm workers. And I think that that is an issue that is recognized often because I, I was recently talking to somebody who's doing some research on on agroecological farming and its effects on women. And they were telling me that in their sort of preliminary uh, research, they found that, of course, women were saying, this is a this is a great thing that I should be carrying, or that we need to use all this manure or we need to use X or Y thing in order to produce it. But we have to, it, it means that we have to uh, carry it in all, on our head for a long time and we need to walk on this terrain and just, it's just so difficult and, and to do it. And I think that's really the problem. I think how do you, if you're going to have um, practices that are, that kind of increase women's drudgery, this is not really sustainable, is it? It might be good for the sustainability of a type of farming, but that's not really sustainable in the sense of sustainable development. I think part of this burden is also because there's this like very strange uh, mixture of the reality of how much agricultural work is being done by women. And it's become a trope also for development uh, organizations, right? So we all need to empower women. And so you almost can't generate funding either for research or for uh, development practice or policy unless you're saying this is also for uh, women like this. You always have to have this gender component attached to it. And so, of course, so it's it almost in some senses, that's great that it's there's so much emphasis on this often invisibilized aspect of agriculture. On the other hand, there is it almost borders on fetishization because you can't conceive of something without making the woman do something, without involving these women who are already extremely burdened by things. And so I think there is some sort of, there's also this kind of policy push, you know, which doesn't have to do only with agriculture. I think it is true generally in this kind of, there's a kind of almost a neoliberal thrust, if you think of it in terms of global development on uh, the woman as the agent of change and the woman as the economic agent, which is which can often be quite problematic, actually. And there are some feminist scholars who've written about this as well. So I think part of this like burden of sustainability on women is also because one is always going and thinking of how to how should this do both things? How should this be good for the environment, but also empower women? And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. 
and i think in that sense that's why i think some context specific you know understanding and slightly more kind of research informed uh, practice is very important that said i just want to point out that even i think this is really great example of this case of sustainable rice intensification for example it's a popular sustainable agricultural practice and i i, I know there's some uh, i've not done research on this personally so i'm totally indebted to other scholars when i'm saying this which is that so with sri the uh, which is what it's called in short form so with sri i think there's this whole thing that these small weeders that are that have been publicized a lot as these are very friendly for women to use okay and it will reduce their drudgery because weeding of in in paddy cultivation is often done by women in most uh, indian and i think other south asian context so this whole publicity was around the fact that women can use these weeders quite easily and the work of this other scholar called regina hansda who's done who studied sri in jharkhand she actually has shown that in fact the moment weeding became mechanized it started being given to male agricultural workers because in terms of patriarchal norms it was just not acceptable for women to be doing agricultural work with machine even though they might be doing the same work on their own farm but if they were to do it on some other you know bigger land owners farm they wouldn't be hired for that so there is this real tension between even these things that are labor intensive or even those that are promoted as this is will is great for women and will reduce their drudgery in fact how it plays out on the ground can be quite quite complex i think and that's i think a place space where research can really enlighten us all like you were saying there's this real need to reorient discourse whether it's a sustainability discourse or agrarian policy economic policy there's a need to reorient that discourse to really incorporate the complexities of the gender lens and as final thoughts shreya i'm curious to know how you envision the future of women farmers in india how do you plan to engage with this vision through your own research and what are your top 2 to 3 policy recommendations that could help catalyze the empowerment of women farmers in the country i think when you said envision the future of women farmers so one can be quite bleak in one sense because to be honest we have a really intense agrarian crisis in india it has been very severe for multiple decades now since the 90s women have faced the biggest brunt of it and because if, if there are suicides of male members in the family or even if there is just chronic indebtedness it's the woman who has to even in those circumstances carry the family forward she has to tend for the children she has to get them married she has to give them food and, and so it's the women who really have to bear the brunt of this and i think b sainath had very famously i think this is an off quoted statement of his which is that uh, suicide is not about the dead it is about the living and who is living in them it's these women that are left behind and so i think to the extent that there is almost nothing being done to address the agrarian crisis in india today 
and i think so i think in the case that nothing is being done to address the crisis in agriculture or the crisis of small holders and again many small holders are actually far women farmers or these are farms run by uh, women so i think until that is addressed this is honestly i feel quite concerned about this future and but that said i think what i find particularly heartening is the mobilization of women by farmers organizations and by movement i think that's one thing that i haven't mentioned in this conversation so far i think it's very important to mention social movements now whether it's the as the union in punjab which is the you know bharatiya kisan union ekta ugraha uh, which has been doing a work on mobilizing women whether it's idwa which is all india democratic women's association i think one often in these conversations on women and agriculture one doesn't think that political a mobilization is significant but it is because it is it empowers them as citizens it brings their concerns to the fore and i think it's very important to it, it's great that we now have movements that are somehow trying to mobilize all these women farmers so i i think that is something that i that i find really positive and i i take a lot of hope from so these are the kind of political more more kind of political activist organizations and then of course there are other kinds of groups as well so whether it's makam which also has focused a lot and has a huge network of organizations that are working on women or whether it's the the asha alliance which is not specifically focused on women but that but gen- gender is an important part of the kind of advocacy they do as well so i think some of this is heartening it's and i hope that something good will come out of that in my own research to be honest so we've done a lot of i've done a lot of collaborative research like i said with other organizations on what women are doing in in different contexts and i think i for my own work i'm actually very interested in women's wage work really and how women's labor can be seen as articulated with national and global economies or the kind of global value chains and how where does women's work on commodities that are then focused that that are then traded globally or nationally how do we understand women's work in those contexts i think finally i think just your uh, question on policy recommendations some things i would definitely say is one is making sure that women have access to credit and to finance and uh, to markets it's so it's clear as day that it is absolutely disabling for women to not be able to access these things and this is when you know if you don't have access to formal credit you're going to rely on the money lender and you will rely on the landlord or you will rely on also microfinance companies are huge in terms of the kind of indebtedness that women in rural areas face and so making sure that they are able to access these things these basic things that complement or kind of the act of production of a crop itself there's no point of producing a crop if you can't take it to the market and if you can't sell it and you have to take a lot of loans to informal credit at high rates to produce a crop so i think that would definitely be one i think that some kind of access to land is very important there has to be some security of tenure and this is very important particularly for landless rural women but can be important for the way it's used can you know one can have a discussion about that because is it do they need it for fodder do they just need they should they be doing collective crop farming all that women themselves can communities themselves can figure that out but i think some some conversation around land is very important because it is it's just it is the it's 
just such a center of power like it's this lack of access to land is such a source of powerlessness in fact that i think that is still an issue that should be on the table and i think finally i would say for women specifically of course it would have a wide ranging impacts i think i would say social protection i feel like i cannot emphasize enough uh, how important it is to think about empowerment of women but also other marginalized groups not just in terms of what kind of income work they are doing sometimes you also need strengthening the pds better anganwadi strengthening the you know integrated child development uh, program so a number of these things need to be strengthened and that of course would firstly have a direct effect on women's uh, work burdens because they would have some state support towards food towards child care and in fact i was uh, i was referring to uh, tanisha mohan's research before she also has in her work noted that where women were able to access the pds more effectively and uh, more easily there in fact their dependence on these kind of landlords in the village was relatively less and they in fact they had more negotiating power vis-a-vis them in terms of either a higher wage or doing a little bit less work so i think there are many ways in which social protection can actually help in empowering women and some are direct but some are quite indirect and i think just strengthening that sort of welfare architecture of the state is extremely important